0: Hello, my name is Carmen Solís, and this is The Bolivian Revolution at 70, a docu-series that are brought to you by the Southeastern Council of Latin American Studies. Today, we will talk about the question of water rights and revolution. And to that end, we will speak with historian, Sarah Hines. Assistant Professor of Latin American History at the University of Oklahoma. She is the author of Water for All, Community, Property and Revolution in Bolivia, 1879, 2019. Like other North American researchers and activists, Sara initially became interested in studying Bolivia during the 2000 Cochabamba Water War, a struggle over water privatization in which a mass movement succeeded in reversing the privatization of the region's water sources. There are a number of studies of the water war in itself But Sara's book explores a deeper history of a struggle for access to water that is linked to broader historical processes, such as the dispossession and dismantling of indigenous communities in the 19th century, the Bolivian Revolution of 1952, and the dictatorships of the 1960s and 70s. Her book argues that Cochabambinos succeeded in defeating privatization in the water war in 2000 because they were defending something they had fought for and won decades earlier, especially in the context of the 1952 revolution. In this interview, Sara tells us the story of the struggle for water democratization in Cochabamba and shows the legacies of these struggles in today's Bolivia. Sara, can you talk about the main contributions of your
1: book? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, First, the book offers a deep history of social struggle over water access and rights in Cochabamba specifically and in Bolivia more generally. Like many people, my attention was first drawn to, to Bolivia and Cochabamba during the 2000 Water War, which was a fight over water privatization where a mass movement succeeded in reversing the privatization of the region's water sources and systems. And this uh, was a huge turning point in Bolivian and even global politics. Um, and Bolivia opened a five-year period of mass mobilization that brought down two presidents, discredited neoliberal economic policies, and led to the election of the country's first indigenous president, Evo Morales. And at the time, uh, during this five years of mobilization, Cochabamba water protesters called for a constituent assembly that would refound the nation on the basis of democratic access to natural resources like water. And President Morales promised to hold such an assembly and made good on this promise once he became president. So in in Cochabamba, the water war returned water provision to the municipal water utility, to peri-urban neighborhoods, and to rural irrigation systems who had managed the water of the region before privatization. And there are many wonderful studies of the water war itself, its aftermath, and the period from the mid 80s to the late 90s where neoliberal approaches took hold in Bolivia. Um, But what I show in the book is that there's a deeper history of struggle over water access in Cochabamba and Bolivia more broadly that's bound up with larger historical processes like the dispossession and dismantling of indigenous communities in the 19th century, like the 1952 revolution, and like the dictatorships of the 1960s and 70s. Um, And so it was through digging back into historical records and historical newspapers and doing interviews with water users in different parts of the region that uh, I found that social struggle over water access in Cochabamba has this long and dramatic history. I argue in the book that this history shows that Cochambinos succeeded in overthrowing or overturning privatization in 2000 because they were defending something they had already won over decades of organizing. And that was popular control over water sources and provision. So whereas where the book begins uh, in the late 19th century, water was controlled by a small number of water owners, by the late 20th century on the eve of the water war, a wide array of groups owned and controlled water sources and provision. So that by 1999, water users in the valley had come to consider themselves the owners of the region's water sources and systems. More specifically, at the beginning of the 20th century, rural estate owners hoarded water sources that the growing urban population, independent small holding farmers, and tenant farmers called Hacienda Colonos, the workers on large landed estates, um, they, they hoarded this water that uh, these different groups needed for irrigation and drinking water. But by the turn of the 21st century, um, a large number of groups, including uh, the public water utilities, of different municipalities, water-using communities on the outskirts of cities and in the countryside, owned and controlled water sources that had been Hacienda property, the property of large estates a century before. Um, So the book tells the story of the struggle for democratization over water in Cochabamba over this century that brought about this sea change. Um, And it argues that democratization owed to the efforts of communities of water users who transformed the water property regime, the rights and access regime in the 20th century. And they did this through their labor, through building uh, water sources and systems, um, through their protests, through purchases of water sources and systems, and through seizures of previously hoarded water sources. So that's the, the first contribution. Another is that the study focuses on the labor, knowledge, and power of ordinary water users in relationship to uh, state institutions, foreign development banks and professional engineers. Um, And I call this broad group of water users and managers Cochabamba's popular hydraulic society um, with the idea connected to what I was saying earlier that over the course of the 20th 20th century, ordinary water users gained significant control over water access and policy. And this is significant because Historical studies of hydraulic engineering have tended to take a top-down approach. They often portray water users and environments as either victims or passive beneficiaries of powerful states and private capital, and they usually focus on state and professional engineers and water managers and don't consider the the expertise of more everyday water users. And this perspective is best represented by Carl Wittfogel and Donald Worster, who both argued in different ways that providing irrigation water in arid agricultural societies necessarily leads to top-down authoritarian forms of rule and exploitation. Um, and while these kinds of outcomes are possible and have no doubt occurred in places like China, which is the place that Whitfogel studied, or the U.S. West studied by Worcester, what I take issue with is the deterministic idea that the development of irrigation systems in arid environments inevitably produces Forms of despotism or top-down control. Um, and what I what I found and what I talk about in the in the book is that in Cochabamba, providing water in a semi-arid environment did not require or produce authoritarianism, but rather ordinary water users won access to a range of water sources and systems. Um, and rather than falling victim to state builders and experts, they built this popular hydraulic society where they built and maintained water sources and systems and maintain that control through their um, expertise and social struggle. So where the book begins in the 1870s, a small group of landowners did control the bulk of the region's water sources, which included mountain lakes and mountainside rivers and springs. Then the rest of the book traces the efforts of a broad array of different groups, from estate workers to independent peasants, to city residents, to neighborhoods on the urban periphery, to state engineers, um, their efforts to democratize access to drinking water and irrigation water and it shows that by the time of the 2000 water war Cochambinos had significantly democratized water access and established a significant measure of popular control over water sources and infrastructure and even over hydraulic planning and policy and this is not to romanticize um, the situation there were certainly and there continue to be inequalities and divisions but this kind of these these kind of the kind of projects i'll talk about a little more in more detail in a few minutes, meant that rather than um, high modernist projects being imposed from outside and ignoring local people and their history and their knowledge and their ecology, um, as they did in many other places, like in Egypt or in India or in the U.S.'s Tennessee Valley, um, in Cochabamba, in contrast, I found that water users have been able to draw on their own history and their knowledge and their desires to craft their own versions of modernity.
0: To, to wrap some of the things that you're saying, I just wanna clarify for listeners that when we think about um, popular struggle in Bolivia, uh, especially when people is focusing on the question of the revolution, people have thought about the question of land and property, but your book is really taking a new angle by looking at the question of water. So that takes me to my next question, which is how does your work help us to rethink the literature about the revolution? How does your work dialogue with previous literature?
1: Uh, For me, the chapter on the 1952 revolution is the most important chapter in the book. Um, It shows that water redistribution was a major demand of people across the valley, including city residents, independent peasants, and estate workers and a major accomplishment of the revolution. Previous uh, studies, including your own wonderful book that was recently published, have looked at land reform, have looked at mining national, mine nationalization, have looked at universal citizenship rights. But there hasn't been as much focus on the environment beyond land, and especially there hasn't been a focus on uh, water. In the course of the research, I found that there was this major Uh, transformation in the water property regime uh, during the revolution as a result of agrarian reform. Um, But I want to first go back and talk a little bit about uh, what came before the revolution to give some sense of how dramatic the change was during the revolution when it came to water property and rights and access. Um, The previous chapter on the water reform uh, efforts in the late 1930s and 40s shows that water reform actually proceeded and was envisioned as a means of preventing land reform. As, a pack, as part of a package of technocratic reforms enacted after the Chaco War in the 1930s. So, in an attempt to increase agricultural production, reformist military social government socialist governments uh, tried to make water more accessible to small farmers through large-scale hydraulic infrastructure projects and through some very limited negotiated purchases of water sources from these estate owners who were hoarding water sources. And this effort began in Cochabamba, the, large, the country's largest agricultural region. And the idea was that with greater water access, both large estates and small farmers could increase production. Um, so to make water more accessible to farmers, the military socialist presidents first nationalized a range of water sources, uh, the reform constitution of 1938, federalized rivers, marshes and medicinal waters, as well as as well as in the Constitution's words, all of the physical forces, able to be used for economic purposes. And then in 1939, President Bush, the second of these two military socialist presidents, invited Mexican state engineers to design and build what became the Angostura Dam, um, irrigation dam in Cochabamba. Um, And Bush and his ministers were interested in doing something like what Cardenas, the president in Mexico at the time, had done there. Um, During Lázaro Cardenas' presidency, the Mexican state redistributed 45 million acres of land And the National Irrigation Commission built a series of dams to increase the productivity of that redistributed land. Um, So Bush's government invited Mexican engineers to come to Bolivia to design and build the Angostura Dam in Cochabamba, um, which they uh, intended to be the centerpiece of Bolivia's new state-built and state-managed irrigation system. Um, And they were drawn to, the Bolivian military socialists were drawn to this model of state-led reform um, that Cardenas had uh, constructed in Mexico because they too, uh, like Cardenas, were interested in economic diversification, greater agricultural productivity, and the uplift of the rural poor. But they wanted all of this without 10 years of Pancho Villa, as my MNR leader Walter Guevara Arce later put it. So they wanted this reform and this greater productivity and this modernization without an armed and violent and destructive revolution. So this, and in fact this water, these hydraulic projects were aimed at trying to increase agricultural productivity and satisfy the demands of small farmers without having to redistribute privately uh, owned land or much privately owned water. Um, So the other side of this was providing greater water supply to the growing city of Cochabamba, the department's capital, where residents were protesting water scarcity and unequal access, um, at a time when the city's population was growing as soldiers from the front after the Chaco War were flocking into cities. Um, So to this end, the state government expropriated water sources from three seasonal rivers that supplied a handful of large estates in Cochabamba's foothills, and somewhere on the order of 800 small farmers. The case record that describes this attempted expropriation is an absolutely fascinating source. It's one of my favorite sources that I found and used in the course of my research, and I'm incredibly grateful that it was preserved um, and available in the state archive when I was doing my research there at the archive of the Gobernación, the the state archive of Cochabamba. And so in the case record, you see the response of large landowners against the proposal. They speak out against it, but it's really the small farmers known as piqueros, independent small um, holders, who offered the sharpest critique of water, uh, of this expropriation on the basis of water inequality. They explain in their letter to the state government that they were forced to rent water from their wealthy neighbors, um, these water owners, landowners, the hacendados, who not only had more, far more land than they did, but also had far more water rights than they did, so much that they had more water, more water access than they needed to irrigate their large land holdings. So the Piqueros proposed that the state government instead expropriate the Chapicirca lakes. And these lakes belonged to the heirs of Daniel Salamanca, the president who had led Bolivia to war with, with Paraguay. the Chaco in the early 1930s. By this point Daniel Salamanca had passed away and that lakes were owned by his children. Um, But the incredible thing is that the prefecture, the state government, followed the piquero's advice. And so rather than expropriate these three um, seasonal rivers that supplied 800 or more small farmers with water, they instead expropriated the privately owned lakes of the former Bolivian president mostly though this um, hydraulic reform was aimed at avoiding these kinds of expropriations and even more so aimed at, re- at avoiding expropriation and redistribution of land while the state governments or the national and state governments hoped that these kinds of dam projects uh, like the Gusto dam project could capture water that was not being used and channel it to farmers large and small but in the end this kind of technical fix was not enough to quell the water demands of piqueros city dwellers or hacienda laborers um, the colonos nor was it enough to quell their demands uh, for agricultural land. So despite these reforms, Cochabamba's water monopoly mostly endured and Hacendados retained ownership of most of the region's water sources. Um, So this background is important to understand demands for water and the transformation that occurred in the revolutionary period. So now I will get to the revolution. After the, the 1952 revolution, rural estate workers' main demand was famously land for those who work it. Um, in other words, they were demanding expropriation and redistribution of land owned by estate owners um, that they had worked for, for a pittance for generations. Um, and as I discuss in the book, the colonos, these estate workers, also demanded water for those who used it. Um, and their demands were based not only on the need to irrigate their plots, which they were in the course of winning through agrarian reform, but they were all, their demands were also based on historic labor. In a grand reform um, case transcripts, there's records of the colonos pointing to the fact that their forebearers had built the dams and canals that stored and channeled water to the haciendas and that their ancestors and that they themselves have been repairing and maintaining them ever since. The chapter uh, on the revolution draws on interviews with elders from agricultural communities in the outskirts of Cochabamba that I did in 2011, as well as government and uh, MNR party records and publications. And very importantly, the transcripts of agrarian reform cases to show that agrarian reform involved not only land redistribution, but also uh, the parceling out of irrigation water sources. And this redistribution of water transformed the water tenure regime by transferring ownership of the lakes that had been owned by asentados to agrarian reform beneficiaries, who were mostly former tenant farmers. And as a result, unions formed by these former colonos came to control some of the region's most important lakes, seasonal rivers, and springs. So in just a matter of a decade, as these cases played out, we went from a situation where a small number of large land owners who were descended from Spanish colonizers, a situation where they owned the region's most important water sources to a situation where some of the most maligned and exploited uh, members of Cochabamba society came to be the owners of these lakes and rivers and springs. I think it's important to think about why the party that led the revolution, the Movimiento Nacionalista Revolucionario, the National Revolutionary Movement, why the party was willing to redistribute land and water. And like many other studies um, that have come out in the last 10 or so years, I find that it's, it's a combination of pressure from below, from armed and mobilized uh, constituents, and uh, revolutionary actors, and because of the MNR's commitment to uh, modern economic and political modernization. In the case of water and land redistribution, the MNR was willing to redistribute them both because of the pressure from small farmers and because of their commitment to increasing agricultural production, um, which they hoped would jumpstart economic development, much like their military socialist predecessors um, of the late 1930s and early 1940s. So at the government's announcement of the agrarian reform decree in Ucrenia, which is an agricultural community in the in Cochabamba's Valle Alto um, on August 2nd, 1953, MNR leader and foreign relations minister, Walter Guevara Arce declared in Quechua, the waters that were rented or sold for agricultural production before are now free and all have a right to them. Um, so this was explicit in the rhetoric around the agrarian reform. Um, and it was also embedded in the agrarian reform legislation, the redistribution of water. MNR leaders knew that increasing agricultural production depended on what they call the quote, uh, more rational distribution of irrigation water, but more than their dreams of abundant crops and economic modernization, it was pressure from below that pushed MNR leaders beyond a technocratic approach to water reform to embrace a more redistributionist one. What did this pressure look like? Um, at first, Hacienda workers pressured through protest and force, They participated in large marches, they blockaded roads and railroads, they attacked Hacienda manor houses, um, and importantly, they waged unauthorized occupations of Hacienda land, trying to expand their plots um, with the hopes that the government would um, legalize these occupations uh, with an agrarian reform law. Um, And once the government did pass such a law, uh, they began to channel their demands into agrarian reform cases in which they petitioned for not only land, but also water redistribution. Um, So in the text of the law, the agrarian reform decree laid out a revolutionary water policy. It nationalized the country's water sources. It abolished the rural water market that the piqueros in 1940 had been talking about um, in that petition that um, I was uh, referring to. And it established that all livestock raisers and farmers should have equal rights to the flows they needed and that the entire population had the right to use drinking water sources. So this was a major change from a legal regime where water had been private property up until this time since the late 19th century. But what this looked like in practice was a different matter, however. Who got access to Hacienda water sources depended on the outcomes of agrarian reform cases filed by colonos and other would-be beneficiaries. And interestingly, when um, looking at the text of these cases, I found that both colonos and hacendados seized on the laws terms for water ownership to make their cases. Colonos often contended that the hacienda's owners had not done enough to use or expand the property's irrigation water access. And hacienda owners, in contrast, routinely argued that they lacked enough irrigation water to make their land more productive, that they used whatever irrigation rights they had, or that they had gone out of their way to purchase additional sources. Um, An agrarian judge's decisions often hinged on who they deemed correct. Uh, so for instance, in Tirani, an, agri- an agri- agricultural community in the foothills of the mountains, north of the city center, colonos stopped working for the hacienda owners and joined revolutionary mobiliz- mobilization soon after the revolution in 1952. And then after the grain Reform was announced, the 58 colonos of the estate filed a case, a case against the owners, the Plaza family Um, alleging that the plazas had failed to take sufficient advantage of the estate's land and water sources. And while the agrarian judge sided with the colonos, he allowed the plazas to keep a portion of the hacienda, 164 hectares, and only granted the colonos ownership of their plots, which totaled around 70 hectares altogether, less than half of what the plaza family was allowed to keep. And the judge also ordered the, the owners and the former colonos to share the Hacienda's lakes, the lakes San Juan and San Pablito. Um, So this is just one case, but it it gives a sense of broader dynamics, that through these cases, former colonos won significant land and water away from former landlords who had built their properties by usurping water, land, labor, and hydraulic expertise from indigenous communities, and then smallholders, and then colonos over centuries. But the case also shows that agrarian reform was just that. It was reform it was not the full-scale revolution that more radical sectors wanted, the full-scale expropriation and redistribution of all Hacienda land and water sources to former colonos and other beneficiaries. I'll just speak briefly about city dwellers and their mobilizations during the revolutionary period. Um, They also mobilized for greater water access in these years. Um, And one of my favorite examples, a 200 worker brigade climbed the mountainside to protest delays in a project meant to bring more water to the city. And once they got up there, they took the project over from municipal workers working 12 hours a day for two days, dynamiting open canals to connect two additional lakes to the city's water system, or at least so they said. And so soon after this, the MNR government announced that it had secured a loan from the Inter-American Development Bank to fund a major drinking water supply expansion project. And you see this time and time again, where water users take matters into their own hands, become insurgent um, water users, and then the government responds by finding financing for the kinds of projects that they are demanding. And interestingly, the mayor of the city had tried to expropriate these same lakes that the colonos were trying to um, gain uh, ownership of. He had tried to expropriate them for the city, but it was the colonos in the end who won these lakes through a grand reform, not the mayor and not the municipal water service. So all this to say that paying attention to water shows that agrarian reform revolutionized the nation's water tenure regime, dispossessing ascentados of water sources that they had until then legally owned and delivered them to former estate tenants. But colonos were much more successful than independent farmers or city dwellers or others in gaining increased water, leaving the MNR's promise as articulated perhaps best by Walter Guevara Arce to provide water for all, only partially fulfilled.
0: As you said, over the last four, five years, six years, um, there have been a, a number of works that have been rethinking the revolution, and your work and my work kind of part of this new wave of literature, rethinking the revolution. So, having the benefit of time, I want to ask you. What, what do you think are the legacies of the revolution, especially looking 70 uh, years after?
1: I mean, I think one of the most important contributions that this new generation of studies has uh, made is to move beyond either the revolution was a betrayal or the revolution was a panacea, but instead to, to show the ways that the revolution led to major gains for many groups and that, that that involved the significant mobilization and demands of those groups, um, but also had significant limits as well, um, and that produced, sometimes reproduced inequalities or produce new inequalities or divisions. And this is the case in every single sector, whether it's mining or land reform or water redistribution or education, that there are both wins and advances uh, for popular interests, as well as limits and setbacks and new forms of inequality and social division. So when it comes to water and focusing on Cochabamba, the gains involved colonos, one of the region's most marginalized groups before the revolution successfully claiming water sources and systems that they and their forebears had built and maintained for several generations. And some of the most moving parts of my research were doing interviews with elders and their children um, in communities like Tirani um, some, many of those elders have now passed, now that it's been more than a decade since I spoke with them, and the the salience of their memories of trekking up to the lakes and, and dams and canals and doing that repair work, sometimes in very difficult conditions, carrying their children with them, carrying the tools and supplies um, that they needed to do that work, and after the revolution, that previous labor provided them with the rationale for making these kinds of demands, and also provided them the rationale for continuing to defend these water sources against encroachment from the outside. Um, so in the decades since agrarian reform, ex-colonial communities have defended these hard-won gains. They've met efforts uh, from the, from foreign institutions, from national authorities, and from local institutions um, to tap what they consider to be their worst uh, water sources with militant resistance and these ex-colonial unions power um, both their ability to mobilize and their physical control of these surface water sources lakes and rivers and and springs gained during the revolution has made state officials and foreign lenders and engineers um, wary of seeking surface water ever since so that's sort of the gains side of things the limits been that water redistribution excluded uh, independent peasants like the Montecillo Piqueros that I discussed earlier, who had successfully stopped the state's expropriation of some of their water sources and proposed expropriating the the Salamanca's lakes instead. It also excluded residents of the growing city, and it left asendados or now ex-Hacendados supposedly, with large tracts of land and large shares of water sources. So one consequence of this inequality was that when things shook out, it was actually a combination, um, starting in around the 1960s of ex colonial unions, urban neighborhoods and the municipal water service um, who held rights to and continue to hold rights to former Hacienda water sources like the San Juan lakes. Um, And this was because many former Hacendados sold their water rights to urban neighborhoods who in turn exchanged them for entrance into the municipal water network. So they traded their sources and systems um, for um, inclusion in the municipal water system Um, So, for instance, the plazas had sold much of their land and half of the San Juan lakes to a neighborhood called Barrio Militar before the revolution, knowing that the revolution might that this this maybe seeing the writing on the wall a bit about what was coming. So then, the municipality gained rights to these this neighborhood's um, half of the lakes through an agreement with that neighborhood, incorporating that neighborhood into the municipal system in exchange for those water rights. So, in the end the city did gain rights to these um, Hacienda water sources, but not in the ways that um, that mayor who tried to expropriate them for the city may have intended. And in the years following the resolution of cases like the Tirani case, a grand reform case, ex-colonial unions in the municipality have shared lakes like uh, the San Juan lakes, um, with each considered half of the lake's owners, half of the lake's uh, water. Um, And they've had agreements over how to divide the water, but there have often been tensions and conflicts that have arisen periodically since, with each side, the municipal water system uh, service or the the ex-colonial unions accusing the other of taking more water than they should be. Another consequence of this inequality was that um, because of the exclusion of independent farmers, other landless farm workers, and city residents, it meant that those without sufficient water access needed to look elsewhere for increased water supply. So rather than redistributing all the water that was available at the time to all water users, um, in the years that followed, all of these groups had to find other ways to fulfill the revolution's promise of water for all. Um, so in the countryside, irrigators purchased water sources from ex or ex-colonial unions, and they also drilled shallow irrigation wells into aqu- aquifers on the city's growing periphery, migrant neighborhoods excluded from the municipal water system, built independent water systems and sourced them where possible in the same ways by purchasing water sources from uh, former Ascendados or ex-colonial unions or drilling wells. And in the city center, the Municipal Water Service sought loans from the Inter-American Development Bank starting in the 60s and 70s to fund water supply expansion projects. And the IDB insisted that the Municipal Water Service drill deep wells in the countryside to increase supply, uh, provoking conflicts with irrigators whose shallow wells dried up as a result. Um, And this this goes back to the power of these ex-colonial unions and their rights um, to mountain lakes, rivers, and springs that they won through the revolution, um, which helps to explain why international bankers and contractors and national and local authorities preferred to seek water in aquifers that they believed could be more easily controlled and safeguarded from combative peasant cultivators. The IDB also insisted that the water service raise rates to pay for these projects, provoking conflicts with the company's own customers. But um, as is the case in uh, many of the histories in recent history in Bolivia, um, water users in the city and the countryside rejected these terms. Um, And such that in the 1970s, city residents launched successful payment strikes against rate increases, irrigators protested deep wells, and all of these water users rallied behind the Missy Dam project that promised to provide plentiful water for both small farmers and urban residents. Um, And another one of my favorite um, examples in 1975, a caravan of 1,000 residents traveled up the mountainside to the project site by the Missikuni River to demand that the government carry out feasibility studies. Um, and very soon after this, um, the government of then dictator Hugo Banzer uh, found funding for these feasibility studies and proceeded to carry them out. Um, so these kind of protests and demands pushed the government, um, starting then, to find funding for studies and ultimately to build the dam itself, starting in the 1990s. And it's now complete, and water has begun to flow from there to Cochabamba, Zona Sud, um, where most neighborhoods have been lef- had been left out of the municipal water network for decades. And I'm actually in Cochabamba now, and it's been really interesting after six years away to see how the Misikuni Dam Project um, is operating now that the dam is complete, um, and to see the ways that neighborhoods in the most excluded areas of the city are relating to um, the Misikuni Company um, and the of the municipal water network, and and the ways that they're trying to get access to that water in the face of continuing inequalities Um, and that goes for the people in the countryside as well who have been even more excluded from the benefits of the project Um, so in sum the legacy of the revolution on water like many other issues is ultimately mixed i would say on the one hand it was a it was a hydraulic revolution a redistribution of water sources uh, from haciendas which was a major step in the democratization of water access in the cochabamba valley and There were similar moves elsewhere in the country as well. Um, On the other hand, this was a limited and unequal redistribution and such that as a result, state institutions looked to foreign credit and institutions to design and fund technocratic projects that also ended up benefiting some at the expense of others. But at the same time, Cochambinos refused to give up on that revolutionary promise of water for all. Inequalities often have pitted urban residents against rural peasants city center residents against residents of the periphery but over and over again culture water users have banded together to demand water projects and policies that rely on their own labor and knowledge and expertise to provide plentiful water for all and these efforts continue with all of their complications today
0: Sarah, thank you so much for coming to the program and discussing the book with us. Thank you
1: so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you.